Um, over the years, I've, sp- I've spoken here on uh, each of the elements of worship at one time or another. The only exception um, has been baptism. And having spent the last couple of months preparing for this, I realized now there was a lot of wisdom in avoiding this issue. Um, I think that of all the books published in the 20th century on, the, on any liturgical subject, this uh, Husel, The Shaping of the Reformed Baptismal Rite in the 16th Century, typically reformed guy has, needs a marketing agent, something terrible. Can you imagine the title? That's really going to, you know, it's going to just bolt to the top of the New York Times bestsellers. The shaping of the Reformed baptismal rite in the 16th century. But it is brilliant. And unlike Carl, I am not given to excessive praise. This is brilliant and just breathtaking in the scope of its scholarship. And um, I think you can do your devotions out of this book. It is a wonderful example of Reformed scholarship at its best. So why speak on the subject of baptism? Well, one reason is that with the breakdown of discipline in the 1960s, um, there has, uh, that combined with the um, what you might call the unrestrained energy and enthusiasm of the Jesus movement, um, we have liturgical anarchy and it has touched the, um, the element of baptism as well as all the others. Uh, backyard swimming pool baptisms, lakeside baptisms, down at the beach baptisms have become commonplace. Um, baptisms among um, the Baptists, believers' baptisms have been known to be accompanied by, uh, by clapping and hooting and hollering and high fives um, uh, that uh, carrying on that would have been a shock uh, really to previous generations. Um, and amongst our people, Joseph Small, who is a denomination official of the PCUSA, so sort of amongst our people, he complains of the chummy expression of congregational welcome into which baptism has been transformed in recent times. Here's how he describes baptism in the PCUSA, but I suspect it rings true for the conservative Presbyterian denominations as well. He says, everyone smiles as the family joins the pastor and an elder at the baptismal font. The congregation is poised in anticipation of the moment when something cute will happen so that everyone can coo and chuckle. The minister reads gracious words from scripture and prays familiar prayers. Well-known questions are are asked and answered and water moistens an infant head. Then comes the parade. The pastor bearing the baby up and down the aisle, introducing the adorable child to the people who are rather arbitrarily identified as the church family. Is there a problem with this? Indeed, he says, after citing the theologically deep and biblically rich statement on baptism from the French Confession of 1559, he says it makes of baptism too small a thing if this ocean of meaning, deep and moving, is reduced to a chummy ritual of congregational welcome. 
So what I'd like to do in the time that we have is to return to our Reformed heritage and review together the meaning and the message and the method of our baptisms. Um, the, the reform of baptism in the 16th century began with theological reforms. That would be Roman numeral one if you're attempting to take notes. Uh, if you'd rather just sit and listen, I'm going to try to have these in some kind of readable form within a few weeks after uh, our time here together. So fundamental theological principles were brought to bear in the discussion of baptism. For example, number one, sola scriptura. The principle that scripture alone is to determine our faith and practice led to sharp criticisms of the extra biblical rites that that had become encrusted in the medieval baptismal forms. And it led to their eventual elimination because of the principle that baptism, along with all that we do in worship, is to be according to scripture and what could not be justified by scripture in the way of these rituals and ceremonies, you know, these postures and movements were eliminated. Uh, just as well, the five other so-called sacraments of the Middle Ages were eliminated. Secondly, sola fide, the doctrine that we are justified by faith alone led to the denial of the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. And with that, the doctrine that taught that grace, the grace of justification is conferred in baptism and then subsequently lost when one sins. Uh, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. The reformers taught that if baptism was to be efficacious, there must be exhortation and instruction accompanying baptism so that the parents might believe. Or if it's an adult, so that the one being baptized uh, would believe. They endorsed with enthusiasm the Augustinian definition of, of the sacraments as visible words. And yet those visible words would not be effective without explanation. The word and the sacrament uh, were in, seen as inseparable. And then the principle of sola gratia. Uh, they held that we are justified by faith, justified by grace through faith, um, and that the Holy Spirit is the agent in the transformation of the believer, bringing grace to bear upon the heart of the believing individual. Over against the Roman Catholic doctrine of ex opere operato, that grace is conferred by the performance of the act. No, grace is conferred by the act of the Holy Spirit. Um, they endorsed again Augustine's definition of the sacrament as an external sign of an inward uh, grace. And yet for it to become such, there, there, there therefore is the need of the work of the Holy Spirit and the the rite of baptism must then be accompanied by prayer. In order, in other words, there, there must be an invocation of the Holy Spirit um, to do that work which He alone can do if the, ex, if the internal reality is to conform to the external sign signified by baptism. So those theological convictions, sola scriptura, the baptism must be conducted according to Scripture. Sola fide, Scripture must accompany 
the administration of baptism, if, if, the, if, if uh, faith is to be exercised, and sola gratia, uh, the Holy Spirit um, must be called upon uh, if, the, if the sacrament is to be efficacious. Secondly, biblical study uh, further uh, brought uh, the reformers to the place where they saw the necessity of reform. So if we can think in terms of a twofold approach, there were the there were the theological convictions that were arising out of the Reformation. And then there was the biblical study of baptism itself. What they found when they studied was that, number one, that 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 baptisms in the Bible were simple washings. And so wherever you look in the book of Acts or, or in the Gospels, they are simply the outpouring of water uh, over the head of the believer. They are simple washings without extraneous uh, ceremony and ritual. And this is true as well in the Didache from somewhere, but which dates somewhere between 80 and 110 A.D. and in Justin Martyr's first apology, which dates about 155. However, by the fourth century, under the influence of the mystery religions, the administration of baptism had become an elaborate liturgical drama with multiple exorcisms, multiple anointings, addressing the catechumens in white robes, baptizing them at the first light of Easter morning. They had wandered even by the fourth century far from the apostolic simplicity that we find in Scripture and often Baptisms were being postponed until late in life, until such time as one had proved one's worthiness uh, to be baptized. So baptism is is evolving into a work that one performs that washes away original sin administered at the end of life uh, so that one has not accumulated too many sins before one dies. By 1500. By 1500. Baptisms were typically private and not a part of the regular Lord's Day worship of the church. Baptismal ceremonies began at the door of the church with the um, exsufflation, that is the blowing in the face of the child, the sign of the cross on the forehead and the breast, the exorcism of salt, the placing of the salt on the mouth of the child, the prayer of exorcism, the epheta exorcism, which was the priest uh, touching the ears and nostrils of the child with his spittle, uh, which was a dramatization of Mark 7, 31 to 37. Then the child was brought into the church where further exorcisms commenced at the font. The baptismal water was exercised, then consecrated by pouring oil into it, um, dipping the paschal candle into it which was giving something of an erotic interpretation as well, and tracing crosses over it. The child was then anointed with oil, a practice meant to represent the Holy Spirit, which one would have thought the baptism was meant to represent, and uh, dating to about the end of the second century. The font was blessed. Godparents, not parents, were charged to teach the child the essentials of the Christian religion. The baptismal rite of the late Middle Ages had become obscured by exorcisms and anointings burdened with the doctrine of baptismal regeneration and viewed virtually as a bit of religious magic. 
Luther, in 1520, led the attack on current baptismal practices in his Babylonian captivity of the church, where he was critical of what he called the whole pageantry of outward things. But he was very slow to reform the baptismal practices themselves. By one year later, or rather four years later, 1524, Bucer, in his Grund und Ursach, which is the first description of the liturgical reforms of Reformed Protestantism, by that time in Strasbourg, all extra biblical rites and rituals had been eliminated. Nothing remained, said Bucer, for which, quote, there was no scriptural justification. So the application of sola scriptura. So number one, in terms of biblical studies, they saw simple washings. And so they reformed uh, the, the administration of baptism so as to restore it to its apostolic simplicity. Secondly, they understood from their script, from their Bible study that baptism was a sign and seal of the covenant. Challenged by the Anabaptists in 1523, Zwingli first began to develop a theology of the covenant, uh, which is, as Hughes Old has pointed out, uh, covenant theology is really reformed sacramental theology. It's in developing sacramental theology that the theology of the covenant or covenant theology is developed amongst Reformed Protestantism. Reformed Protestants. Zwingli published Of Baptism in 1525. He was followed then by the writings of Oikolampadius, Bullinger, and Calvin. Uh, they argued that there is one essential covenant of grace, that the difference between the covenants is administrative and external, not substantial. Calvin has two chapters in the Institutes on that subject. And they argued that the place of the family was unaltered within the covenants. From Romans 4.11 and the Apostle Paul's description of circumcision, they argued that baptism uh, was a sign and seal of justification by faith. As signs, they signify the work of Christ, uh, his shed blood upon the cross and all the benefits that accrue to us thereby, as well as the pouring of the water representing the work of the Holy Spirit. They are also seals that ratify and confirm God's covenant promises. So third, then, through the biblical studies, they saw that baptisms were simple washings. They came to understand baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant. And thirdly, uh, they came to see that baptism was the equivalent within the new covenant of circumcision. In Colossians 2.11, the Apostle Paul there calls um, baptism the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision was the right of admission into the covenant community, and therefore baptism functioned in the same way as the right of admission for the new covenant community, uh, clearly, that is the way it is functioning in the book of Acts as well. They turn to places like Genesis 17:11. Uh, there, circumcision 
is identified as the sign of the covenant and of the promises of the covenant. Uh, Peter reaffirms uh, the, the, the same principle in Acts 2.38. This promise is for you and for your children. As an equivalent of circumcision and as a sign, it signifies our cleansing. Uh, Acts 22.16, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Uh, it signifies the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who regenerates and sanctifies. Uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the equivalent of the circumcised heart. It signifies justification by faith in Romans 4.11. It signifies God's covenant promises to be a God to us and to our children after us, Genesis 17.11. Again, Hugh's old covenant theology is reformed sacramental theology. Peter Lillebach, in his uh, book, The Binding of God, says Calvin's doctrine of the sacrament is saturated with the covenant. So back to the outline, Roman numeral one, one was the theological reforms. Roman numeral number two was the biblical studies. Roman numeral number three, the reforms. Baptism was to be administered. One, with biblical explanation and exhortation. It was first added in the Strasbourg Church Order of 1525, fairly early in the Reformation. The meaning of baptism would be explained at the time of its administration. Faith would be urged. Privileges and obligations of baptism would be unfolded. Yes, baptism is a visible word, but that's, uh, that Visible word must be explained, its meaning proclaimed. Secondly, it would be administered with biblical simplicity. Booser in 1524 says it is our custom to baptize our children without ostentation. A third, it would be administered with prayer. The epiclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit is in place in Strasbourg in 1525. Over against ex opere operato, um, water baptism is to signify spirit baptism. Consequently, the work of the Holy Spirit is vital and he must be called upon to do that which is his work. Fourth, baptisms are to be administered ecclesiastically and publicly. Baptism is a church ordinance and consequently private baptisms were discouraged um, those who are baptized are to be baptized, quote, in the face of the congregation. That uh, expression echoes through our history. Even emergencies, emergency baptisms were discouraged as a bit of magic, implying a bit of magic because children born to believing parents are already in the covenant and they are not at risk if they die in, uh, immediately upon, you know, or uh, quickly upon or soon after their birth. And then fifthly, uh, baptisms were to be administered with the family. Um, the promises of God are to the family. Consequently, parents, not godparents, as was the custom in the Middle Ages, are to take the vows and the congregation is to undertake the responsibility that was assigned to godparents to assist the parents in the Christian nurturing of their children. 
All right. Roman numeral number four, pastoral development. So number one was theological reforms. Number two, biblical study. Number three, uh, the reforms. Number four, pastoral development. These uh, implications of the reform of baptism really are my primary concerns. Uh, the refor- Reformed Protestants refuted the Roman Catholics and their doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Uh, they refuted the Anabaptists and their doctrine of believers' baptism only. That then raises a question, though. How are we to nurture in the faith those whose baptism as uh, those who are baptized as children? And the answer that evolved amongst Reformed Protestantism uh, Protestants was they are to be nurtured through catechizing. Uh, That is that following their baptism, when they reach the age of discretion, they would be baptized. Rather, they would be catechized. Uh, The catechism would would be their public profession of faith whereby they confirm the vows taken on their behalf at the time of their baptism. And this public profession of faith uh, would then be followed by a lifetime of contemplating or what later comes to be called improving their baptisms. All right, so let's um, let's uh, unpack some of that. First, The reformers reconnected baptism and catechizing. They they knew the ancient history. They knew that in the early church and the church of the church fathers, that catechumens were put through a rigorous course of study prior to being baptized. So there was a connection between catechizing and baptism. Um, there was even among some of the church fathers um, the, um, uh, the, t- t- uh, the teaching that, that there should be even a delay between the baptism and uh, the catechizing um, because it was only one, it was once one was baptized that one then had received the illumination that was necessary in order to understand um, the, mis- the mysteries of the Christian religion. So there was this connection in the, in the ancient church between baptizing and catechizing that during the Middle Ages fell into essentially complete disuse. Uh, there was no longer any catechizing of children. There was no longer any catechizing of, of adults. And, and the reformers admired this commitment of the early church to the instruction of its candidates for baptism. And there are collections of sermons uh, amongst leading church fathers there's uh, Cyril of Jerusalem's mystagogical catechisms, uh, catechism. There's Ambrose's um, uh, catechetical sermons, and uh, there are uh, Augustine's catechetical sermons. So the, the reformers knew this history. They knew of the connection in the early church, and they sought to reestablish it. Uh, Hughes Old. 
says that the the reformers regarded baptism as the sign under which the Christian lives out the whole life. The sign of baptism, he says, although administered but once, is a continuing reality in the Christian in the Christian life. And so the, the reformers in Zurich and in Strasbourg and Constance and Geneva sought to reconnect baptism with catechizing. And that desire was behind the early initiatives to reestablish catechetical instruction, reconnecting baptism and uh, catechizing. The recitation of the catechism was seen as a confirmation of the vows that were taken at the time of the of, of, of the child's baptism. And the reformers pursued catechetical instruction with great enthusiasm. Luther, Calvin and many other of the first generation of reformers. Likewise, the English Puritans such as Baxter and Owen wrote catechism and their successors like uh, like Matthew Henry and the, the, the Scotsman uh, John Willison um, and then uh, many of the English uh, Puritans, as well as the Scots, wrote expositions of exist of the existing catechisms um, or elaborated those catechisms with multiple questions under each one of the questions. And under underlying all this is the principle that the baptism plays a central role in the life of the believer, that it's not once for all, but that it establishes a child in the Christian life, which then gets confirmed by their public confession of faith upon their having successfully recited the catechism and then is followed by a lifetime of contemplating the meaning of their baptisms. Both as a sign and as a seal, baptism was understood uh, to be that which the believer would would consider throughout the remainder of his life. Now, you can see this uh, clearly in Calvin's exposition of baptism. Um, I expected fully to find this amongst the Puritans. But I was surprised the extent to which it is there with Calvin. So I'm going to read some quotes from Calvin and then jump forward to Matthew Henry uh, and then draw some application for today. I know it's hard to listen to extended quotes, um, but maybe you can hang with me uh, and appreciate what's being said. We'll try anyway. Calvin sees baptism as a token and proof of our cleansing. He says it confirms to us that our sins are so abolished that they can never come to God's sight again or be charged against us. Calvin points out that the apostles themselves can be shown to employ baptism as an aid to the believer's faith. Now, if you've never thought about it in this way, you're, you're going to hear passages that, that you know real well and recognize the way the apostles are using baptism in order to goad believers on 
in the living of the Christian life. Citing Ephesians 5.26, which says, having cleansed her, the church, with washing of water with the word. And Titus 3.5, which says he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. Calvin argues that the meaning of these texts is, is not that water cleanses and saves. Uh, let me quote him now. But only that in this sacrament are received the knowledge and certainty of such gifts. He claims that it is as if the Apostle Paul said through the gospel, a message of our cleansing and sanctification is brought to us. Through such baptism, the message is sealed, that is confirmed. He says, if we stumble or fall, the recollection of our baptisms is meant meant to assist us. He says we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it, that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. As Luther used to say when he he was struggling, uh, when he was assailed by the devil, he would remind himself, I am baptized. That's essentially what Calvin is saying here. Are you troubled by the awareness of your failings? Uh, Calvin says, there is no doubt that all pious folk throughout life, whether they are troubled by a consciousness of their faults, may venture to remind themselves of their baptism, that from it they may be confirmed in assurance of that soul and perpetual cleansing which we have in Christ's blood. That's the visible word aiding our faith. The visibility of the word is meant to confirm and strengthen our faith. God makes visible that which is invisible in order to aid and assist us in our faith. So Calvin is saying, make use of it. Remind yourself of your baptism. Contemplation of one's baptism also plays a vital role in sanctification. Citing Romans 6, 3 through 4, where Paul says we are buried with Christ in baptism. And later, Colossians 2, 11 and 12 and Titus 3, 5. Again, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Calvin teaches that by these words, the Apostle Paul not only exhorts us to follow Christ as if he had said that we are uh, admonished through baptism to die to our desires by an example of Christ's death. And be aroused to righteousness by the example of his resurrection. Okay, so yes, we are admonished to to die through our baptism. We are, you know, buried in baptism. So we are reminded of our death to sin. But, he says, he also takes hold of something far higher, namely that through baptism, Christ makes us sharers in his death that we may be engrafted in it. Further, he says, those who receive baptism with right faith truly feel the effective working of Christ's death in the mortification of their flesh, together with the working of his resurrection and the vivification of, of, his, of the spirit. From this, Paul takes occasion for exhort, exhortation. If we are Christians, we ought to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Romans 6.11. And you notice he speaks in these last two quotes, both of what it signifies, but also what it affects. That uh, baptism is not merely a sign. It also affects that which it signifies. Uh, More comprehensively, citing Galatians 3, 26 and 27, 
which says all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Calvin urges that our faith receives from baptism the advantage of its sure testimony to us that we are not only engrafted into the death and life of Christ, but so united to Christ himself that we become sharers in all his blessing. Baptism there, he said, is a sure testimony which is advantageous to us, to our faith. Baptism, says Calvin, is given for the arousing, nourishing, and confirming of our faith. It is a sign of cleansing from sin, forgiveness, the imparting of the Spirit. God's aim through baptism is, he says, that we should see spiritual things in physical as if set before our very eyes. For the Lord was pleased to represent them by such figures, not because such graces are bound and enclosed in the sacrament as to be conferred upon us by its power, Roman Catholic view, but only because the Lord by his token attests his will toward us. And he does not feed our eyes with a mere appearance only, but leads us to the present reality and effectively performs what it symbolizes. And it is a means of grace itself. By baptism, we enter God's church and are exhorted to live in harmony with other believers since 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Baptism being used there by the apostle to urge unity amongst Christians, as he does as well in Ephesians 4, 3 to 5, when he reminds us that there is but one faith and one baptism. Calvin summarizes the meaning of baptism in terms rich with pastoral implications. He says, Scripture declares that baptism first points to the cleansing of our sins, which we obtain from Christ's blood. You know, the sprinkling of the water, the sprinkling of the blood. So it points first, he says, to the cleansing of our sins, which we obtain from Christ's blood. Then to the mortification of our flesh, which rests upon participation in his death and through which believers are reborn into the newness of life and into the fellowship of Christ. All that is taught in the scriptures concerning baptism can be referred to this summary. He says parents derive singular assurance and joy from the baptism of their children. He says, for how sweet it is to godly minds to be assured not only by word, but by sight that they obtain so much favor with the heavenly father that their offspring are within his care. For when we consider that immediately from birth, God takes and acknowledges them to be his children, we feel a strong stimulus to instruct them in an earnest fear of God and observance of the law. Accordingly, unless we wish spitefully to obscure God's goodness, let us offer our infants to him. For he gives them a place among those of his family and household, that is, members of the church. Now, this pastoral role, this discipline of remembering one's baptism, of contemplating its meaning for assurance of salvation, 
motivation for sanctification, um, urging unity within the church, achieved confessional status with the work of the Westminster divines. The larger catechism question number 167 asks and answers, how is baptism to be improved by us? Answer. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long. Uh, see, the catechism is picking up that theme. Baptism is not once for all. Uh, once for all. It, 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 it extends. It's, uh, rather, it's not a one time thing. It extends out over the whole lifetime of the believer. So it is to be performed. This this duty of improving our baptism all our life long in order that we might continue to experience the benefits of our baptism. But back to the catechism, especially in time of temptation, when we are when we are present at the administration of it to others. All right. So every time the baptism is being administered, there's the opportunity to improve our baptism. And likewise, uh, for ministers to urge congregations Baptized members to improve their baptisms. And in much the same way that when we administer the Lord's Supper, we remind people of the benefits of the body and of, of the blood uh, of the atonement, of the shedding of the blood of Christ, the shedding of the blood of the new covenant. We remind them of that. We remind them that it is a covenantal meal that confirms and ratifies the promise of the, of the gospel. And in turn, it, it calls us to reconfirm and ratify our covenant with God as well. So every time it's administered, whether uh, the sacrament is being administered, whether it's the Lord's Supper or baptism, it is an opportunity. It is a pastoral opportunity uh, to encourage, to remind and to exhort the people of God. Back to the catechism. When we are present, uh, when we are present at the administration of it to others, here's how. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it, that is baptism, and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements. By growing up to assurance of pardon of sin, and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as that those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. So it is not a one time event, but plays an important role in assure, assuring us of uh, our salvation and in motivating us to mortify our sins and to walk in uprightness. All right, Matthew Henry, then in 1710. So we're nearly 200 years later after um, Zwingli's first writing on baptism in 1525. He writes a treatise on baptism, which is, in my view, the classic treatment of the doctrine of baptism. He says of baptism that it is asserted by the apostle from 
Hebrews 5.10. It is asserted and adhered to as a fundamental point in our religion. He says baptism is a part of our Magna Carta. And if you read through Henry, you will see an essential continuity between Henry and the reformers, extending that uh, continuity of outlook over the 200 years. He uses classic definitions and texts. He um, he de- defines uh, sacrament as, as visible words, as external signs of inward uh, realities. He summarizes The meaning of baptism in this way, he says, now these two, the blood of Christ and the spirit of Christ, include all the benefits of redemption. Some are the acts of God's grace for us. Others are the work of God's grace in us. And both these are signified and sealed in baptism. Both what? God's grace in us, God's grace for us. The blood of Christ and the spirit of Christ. Both. He then spends. Twenty seven of his seventy seven double columned pages. Taking up the question of how to improve one's baptisms. Pages five hundred and thirty three through five fifty five fifty six through five sixty six. When Henry speaks of improving our baptism, he means, quote, we must carry it in everything as a baptized people. And our whole conversation must be under the influence of our baptisms. He asks, would you have all our Christian duty in one word? He answers, it is to behave in every respect as those who are baptized. Baptism not improved, says Henry, is no baptism. So, what would Henry have us do? He would have us improve our baptisms by remembering when we are tempted by pride or passion or injustice or excess, that we were baptized into the visible church. And by so doing, he says, put on Christ, as in Galatians 3.27. We were admitted into the family of God. Precious privileges were sealed to us and we were bound by covenant to be the Lord's. Those who have put on Christ in baptism are to make no provision for the flesh. Romans 13, 12. Baptism obliges us to die to sin and live to righteousness. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, we are to live in newness of life. Sin may not be master over us. He argues, citing Romans 6, Colossians 2. He goes on like this. Page after page, pointing to baptism as incentive to duty, as well as support of our faith. By baptism, he says, we have hold of God when he seems to withdraw from us. Henry urges, saying, use this as an anchor of the soul in every storm. That whatever happens, keep hold of thy covenant relation to God. Even then, when he seems to forsake Yet, as Christ upon the cross, maintain this post against all the assaults of Satan, that he is my God, my God for all this. And happy the people whose God is the Lord. He sees baptism as an aid to our prayers. He says baptism is the one special qualification that fits us for a confident approach to God. 
that we, by that we were admitted into the relation of children, which we should, which should, which should encourage us to improve the relation by crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6. In prayer, we stand in need of the Father's smiles, the Son's righteousness, and the Spirit's aid. In reference to each of which, we should consider that we were baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You see what he says there? Do we not stand in need of the Father's smiles, the Son's righteousness, and the Spirit's aid? Oh, yes, we, we, we do stand in need of that. Well, remember, he's saying, that you were baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Like Calvin, he sees baptism as a great inducement to brotherly love. He points to Ephesians 4, 3 to 5, and the Apostle Paul's appeal to one baptism along with one faith and urges all Christians who are duly baptized, however differing in other things, are interested in one and the same covenant, guided by one and the same rule, meet at one and the same throne of grace, are entitled to one and the same inheritance, and all this by one and the same baptism. And should they not then love one another, since these things wherein they agree are so many and so great, while the things they wherein they differ are comparatively so few at least so small. Like Calvin, he points to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body as he appeals like the apostle before him for love, sympathy and unity among Christians. Henry directs parents as to the improvement of their children's baptisms by praying for them. He says, you pray for them as in covenant with God, interested in the promises sealed to be the Lord's. And those are good pleas in prayer. You know, what he's saying there is when you're pleading for the souls of your, children, of your children, plead their baptisms. Remind God of their baptisms. Um, and these are good pleas in prayer to be used for the confirmation of your faith. Pray that God would treat them as his. Tell him and humbly insist upon it that they are his. Whom you gave to him and of whom he accepted. And will he not take care of his own? Parents are also to improve their children's baptisms by teaching them. Pointing to Ephesians 6.4, Proverbs 22.6, Deuteronomy 6.7 and other texts. He says, bring them to church uh, as well. He says, as soon as they are capable of being kept so quiet as not to give disturbance to others. It wasn't too long ago I urged this principle to my congregation and ended up with a handful of hysterical mothers. Um, I tell you, it was a wonderful moment when I saw that Matthew Henry himself had said the same thing 300 years before. So as soon can I read that again? As soon as they are ca capable of being kept so quiet as to not give disturbance to others, bring them to church. And he says, with a little care and prudence, they will quickly be able to do that. 
And though they are not able to understand what is said and done, my reasons are that children may thereby be trained up to an observance of religion and be ready to receive impressions as soon as ever they become capable. Further, he says, they are therefore taken into the church so young that, as we say, they may suck in religion with their milk. And like Timothy, may from their very infancy become acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. All right, then application of these principles and uh, the outlook that we have uh, surveyed for today. What can we say about administering baptism today? Number one, we should baptize, we should administer baptism frequently. Um, there are going to be occasions where it's not convenient because of other things that are going on in the life of the church. That's to be understood. But I would say that it is profitable to have a baptism every Sunday. Rather than saving them and doing a half dozen of them all on one Sunday in order to get them out of the way so that they don't clutter up other services. I would say based on what we've seen so far, a baptism every Sunday would be a positive uh, turn of events for our churches because it provides the opportunity for the whole congregation to improve their baptism. Matthew Henry calls baptism an edifying ordinance. He says it is of great use to all to be frequently reminded of their original corruption and of their baptismal covenant. Therefore, ministers ought not to refuse their hearers the benefit that they might derive from being spectators of this solemnity. Secondly, administer baptism covenantally and ecclesiastically. Uh, baptism is the right of admission to the Christian church. It is an ordinance of the church. It is based on the faith of the parents. Therefore, the vows should address the parents and their responsibility to rear their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And vows should be administered to the congregation to assist the parents in the Christian nurture of their children. Three, um, administer baptism with scriptural simplicity. Avoid the complicated, the exotic and the melodramatic. Um, they are signs, the sacraments. So don't obscure them or clutter them with activity. Don't have a circus going on around the baptismal font. Don't. Uh, I would agree with Mr. Small, whom I quoted at the outset. Don't have a parade of the child up and down the aisle. Have the focus. Here's the thing. The focus should be on the sign. Don't distract attention from the sign. If you value the biblical signs, you will want the, the signs themselves to be displayed and not be obscured by any other activity that distracts attention away from the visible sign. Does that not make sense? Calvin says, how better would it be to omit from baptism all theatrical pomp? which dazzles the eyes of the simple and deadens their minds. So administer baptism with simplicity. Matthew Henry says washing with water is a plain thing. The book of church order says that we are to pour water without adding any other ceremony. All right. Fourthly, uh, administer baptism with counsel and instruction, particularly before first baptisms. Explanation should be given as to the meaning 
of the baptism and what the parental duties um, are expected of them and to which they will make vows uh, in the baptism. So the baptism should be explained. Parental responsibilities should be explained as well. Number five, baptism should be administered with the word and with prayer. Matthew Henry again says, the word is our warrant for what we do and therefore should be read as our commission, as our commission for what we do. The scripture says, go ye and disciple the nations, baptizing them. Henry continues, the nature of the ordinance should be opened and the covenant of which it is a seal and care taken to fix a right notion of the institution and to raise the affections of the congregation administered with the word and likewise prayer that is suited to the ordinance. That's Henry's words should be offered prayer. He says, acknowledging the goodness of God to us in making a new covenant and in appointing sacraments to be seals of that covenant, giving him thanks that the covenant of grace is herein, herein so well ordered. And not only we, but our seed are taken into it, dedicating the child to God accordingly, begging that he would honor his own ordinance with his presence and sanctify and bless it to the child. That the washing of the child with water in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost may effectually signify and seal his engrafting into Christ. And that he may thereby partake of the privileges of the new covenant and be engaged to be the Lord's. Sixthly, administer baptism publicly. I would say that goes without saying, but you know... I don't think there's anything anymore that goes without saying. Not in my denomination. Um, so, yes, we we um, we don't baptize privately. Baptisms are in the face of the congregation. It is the right of admission into the life of the congregation. They become members of the church. It is an ordinance of the church. So it is to be conducted publicly in the presence of the congregation. And then lastly, uh, administer baptism with a serious tone. Covenant vows are an inherently serious matter. Matthew Henry urges that we administer baptism in a solemn manner. He insists, let me, let me quote him further, that inward all, uh, he insists upon that inward all which should possess us in divine worship, must put a gravity upon the outward deportment. Further, he says, whispering and laughing and other irreverences of behavior at this ordinance are a provocation to God, an affront to the institution, a disturbance to others, and a bad sign of a vain and carnal mind. Uh, Donald McLeod and uh, the older Donald McLeod, who wrote the book Presbyterian Worship about 1965 or so, it says everyone involved in these sacramental services should aim at order, efficiency and reverence. And let me add one more. Number eight, reconnect baptism to, to catechism. 
probably we need to make it clear to parents when they are taking vows that they are agreeing to instruct, not vaguely, but instruct their children in the catechisms of the church. The vows that parents took at the time of the baptism are to be confirmed by the public profession of faith, that faith defined by the catechism, catechisms of the church. Our young people should be thoroughly prepared for their public professions of faith. Let me close with that. I think that leaves about 20 minutes for questions, if there be any. Yes. Well, I'd be, I'd be interested in what a number of you have to say on that question. The question is, what uh, can you baptize someone, uh, a child that's not a member of your church? And um, my answer would be no. Um, and the, the exception, I would say, is um, because it's an ordinance of the church, because it is a right of admission into the membership of the church, that... The child must be the child of parents who are members of the church because it's by virtue of their membership that they are baptized. The exception then would be that if the session of another church gave your church permission to baptize the child on their behalf, the child then being enrolled onto the membership of the home church. So I, I think I think that I don't think there's a problem given the Catholicity of the church of of a church baptizing a non-member as long as the parents are members somewhere and the child is being enrolled in, into the membership of the parental church. So we can baptize on behalf of another church if they give us permission to do it. If the understanding is we are your surrogates, we are doing this on your behalf and um, the child, by virtue of the parent's membership, is going to be placed in the role of your church. That's that's my application of all this. Maybe some others have other ideas on that. Dr. Kelly. Thank you. <laughs> you. You probably couldn't hear all the way out there. My sigh of relief.
That, that has been exactly our practice. We want a letter from the home church giving us permission and telling us that the child will be taken into their membership. That's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, I, I flee to the Catholicity of the church at that point. Um, I mean, how do you how do you, how do, how do you fulfill that vow for anyone who moves away from the church? I, I mean, I, I think that that we, we deal with that problem all the time. And I think the vow assumes that we will uh, uh, fulfill that responsibility insofar as we're capable while they are among us. And there, in that case, the whole congregation, I think, is acting as surrogates for that other congregation. We are really taking that vow on their behalf. Uh, and they are assuming the responsibility. Or I think you could admit, omit it. We haven't omitted it. We've, we've used the vow, and I've explained uh, we are doing this on behalf of the other congregation, that sort of thing. You want to say any more about it, Bill? No, I'm just interested in what you did uh, and what you thought Yeah. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say because of the nature of baptism, because it, it is the right of admission. Again, you want to answer that one?
Yeah, I mean, the concern that you find in Calvin and Henry and I think across the board is that if you if you conduct emergency baptisms, the implication is is, is that there, it's, baptism is a form of magic and uh, that the child is somehow at risk when when a child is born to into a Christian home, they are in the covenant and they are not at risk. There is there is no loss involved. I mean, it, you, you, you walk a tightrope on that. Because you don't want to imply that baptism has no value itself. Neither do you want to imply that uh, their souls are at risk if you neglect to baptize them. Um, and so there's been the resistance to private baptisms, even in emergency situations. Uh, yes. Why does the why does it need to be a minister? I well, I think because it's the church's ordinance, and the therefore the baptism needs to be administered by the um, appointed agent of the church um, for the administration of the ordinances of the church. And so the, the, you know, the minister is the one who has been educated and um, trained uh, for the preaching of the gospel and for the administration of the sacraments. Um, And he then acts on behalf of the church in the administration of its ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and in the preaching of the word. Um, I think that, that that's. I, I think that there are theological reasons that we can argue on the basis of the nature of the sacraments 
as ordinances of the church. But then I think there's also very strong prudential reasons for leaving the sacraments in the hands of the clergy. And all, all you have to do is look at church history and, and look at the history of division, confusion, and conflict over the sacraments. And you can see the prudential reasons why they should not be administered by anyone other than an ordained minister who has... Um, you know, been through a rigorous course of instruction and been thoroughly examined by uh, presbytery and set apart for those for those tasks. Not even ruling elders are to administer the sacraments in Presbyterian polity. And I think that's the reason why I think ultimately it's prudential. It has to do with uh, the, the wisdom or lack thereof in um, placing the sacraments concerning which there is so much confusion and so much division over uh, in the history of the church into the hands of those who are underqualified to administer them, whose um, knowledge and, and uh, training is, um, is not at the depth. You, in other words, you want those in the hands of those who have the, uh, the, the deepest um, level of training that the church requires. And so ruling elders um, are not subjected to that. They don't go to seminary for three years. They don't have the rigorous exams that ministers do. Um, and I, I think for prudential reasons, then, we don't put those in the hands of, uh, of, uh, of laymen or of uh, elders. Wes? Dr. Kelly? Thank you once again, Dr. Kelly. <laughs> yes.
I just think you can't baptize people into the thin air. They've got to be baptized into something. They get baptized into the church. So there, I would say there needs to be a church that's receiving those prisoners. Is there no church that will have them, that will take them? Is, is there a church working with them? Can they give a credible profession of faith? Can they? And, the, and then you're pointing out the problem of having to administer it privately and not in the context of the assembly. Is that what you're also asking? I mean, I, I, I don't want to throw open the floodgates uh, for all manner of private baptisms. But, you know, is it, could there be a commission sent from the session of the church to go in there and administer it and receive that prisoner? I mean, what if he's got a life sentence? Is there no way for him to belong to a church? I mean, you, you, don't, make, you don't make rules by the exceptions. But there are exceptions, and I think it's tricky business to try to figure out how to do that. But we do have commissions from Presbytery that act on behalf of Presbytery. Could you commission elders from the session to go and to receive that person through baptism into the church, given some, you know, given the extraordinary circumstances? I mean, I would think that you could do something like that. I, again, I just don't want to the argument of the beard to be... Um, you know, to be invoked then uh, to say, well, you see, you did it then. Therefore, we to throw out all the rules and we just baptize anywhere, anyplace, anytime. Because somebody wants a nice feel good um, ceremony. Um, yeah. We've got a couple more minutes. Any other? You press the time. 6.05, let's say. Any other questions? Yes. I would suggest that one ought always to be the member of a visible church and accountable uh, to that body. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I don't think a Christian not, a member, not being a member of a visible church is a condition even contemplated by the New Testament. If you are a Christian, you are a member of the visible church. I, you know, I think we have very, very Gnostic views of the church right now, really, that are out there that, you know, I'm a Christian and a couple of other believers I get together with at Starbucks. That's two or more of us gathering in Jesus name. We're the church. No, you're not. You're really not. The church is an institution. It's got officers. It's got a method of discipline. It's got a government. It's got sacraments. It has concrete, uh, real existence. And baptism is an ordinance of that institution. I mean, look, I'm a Californian. I, my, in college, my friends baptized each other in swimming pools. I know of what I speak. And it was and and all hanging around at somebody's house one night and somebody says, hey, you want to observe the Lord's Supper together? 
I mean, I mean, you know, it's just misplaced sincerity, but it is misplaced. It's an ordinance. They are ordinances of the church. They are the church's sacraments. Question? Don't you hate people who cite Bible passages? That was really disrespectful. Let's see. Dr. Dr. Kelly, wouldn't you say that the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch was exceptional, exceptional circumstances? And its first missionary and the founder of the Ethiopian church. Yeah, I, you know, I, I know Dr. Kelly's joking about that, but you wouldn't want to build a case for baptismal practice based on all that we don't know subsequent Subsequently, that happened in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, did the Jerusalem church look after him? Did they just wave goodbye and off he went and there was never any contact again? That's not, you know, there must have been. There must have been an ongoing relationship of some sort. You know, I don't think it was just abandon him at that point. So, any others? Yes. Um, the study of baptism is very rich. There are layers and layers and layers and layers of meaning. Um, it's very, very rich. Uh, we could talk about baptism almost endlessly, I think, because, because as Henry and Calvin and others have said, the whole gospel really is contained in the sacrament of baptism. Everything that we get by the blood of Christ and all that we receive by the spirit of Christ are implied by baptism. So you can connect baptism to just about everything and do, do it legitimately without, you know, stretching the point. All right, Carl. Brothers, we're going to stand and sing him.